Hello and welcome to this Christmas special edition of the Agents Lounge. I don't know if it's sort of Christmas special edition, but it's definitely the last one of 2021. Today I am joined by Dr. Philip Blood, OC Railroads, author, collector of many tombs of knowledge, sharer of knowledge, all-round good egg, snappy dresser, and he has got a 116th scale Tiger tank that is powered by 20 batteries. Hello, Phil. <laughs> Afternoon, Biggles. You yeah, see, this I, I come here for. I get the Thanks, camaraderie. Incredible introduction. I think you can't beat that. Wait until they put me on the radio or telly. I'll be on UK TV Gold. <laughs> 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 introducing Marjorie and her flan. <laughs> How yeah, are you? I, I, I've got a model 116 Tiger Tank, which was a gift when I published my first book. I, I think that's a worthy gift. I've got another gift from the first book, but I don't like to go on about it. Uh, a bunch of reenactors sent me the Bandon Bekampfung badge, an original Jesus. one. Yeah. Yeah. Now, is, is that the one? Is that one issue during wartime on the uh, the post-war one with the the swastika blanked out? No, it's got the swastika on, and it also has, you know, it's the one with the hydra and the yeah. sword through. I, I did write about it in the book, and they all thought I was so. I, they all thought I was pro, kind of Nazi SS uh, reenactment shite, which. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I am pro reenactment. I'm not entirely pro this Baffin SS thing, but that's only because I've done too much reading on it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I must admit, we're going to be talking about that today because uh, reenactment has come up uh, in, in the Twitter sphere quite recently. Apparently so, yeah. Somebody made a comment. Uh, and yeah. then other people made comments, and then people started saying, you know, and having their opinions. And then some people said this, some people said that, some people said the other. And I'm thinking, I've had this conversation with Gary from Calais, with Nick Budd, um, OC Reenactment, and OC French Debt. And okay, we, we, we came to the conclusion that actually, yeah, all reenactments generally aren't bad, they're not a bad thing. But then you can't get away from the fact that some are politi have political overtones or are politically motivated. Do, do Nick and Gary have any opinions on this stuff? I have noticed. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, as you know, Nick and Gary are wallflowers when it comes to anything. And um, we'll have to get them back. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they're such nice petals. You, you, you can't delicate, imagine. <laughs> delicate petals, yeah. De delicate flowers of masculinity. There's a Ramstein song being written about them as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> or at least, if not my Ramstein, at least my layback. Um, <laughs> <laughs> both are excellent bands, and I do like both actually. Ramstein got me through Kosovo without without going berserk, and layback have always been a staple of uh, background music for when I'm doing certain things, writing. Uh, 
I kind of shift between Beethoven and the Sex Pistols, but that guy. <laughs> hey, I tell you what, actually, you know what? Recently, I've been working and I've discovered. I've gone back to my my circuit training roots. Don't do it anymore, but trance anthems. Oh, like I can write like a demon. Yeah. Put some trance anthems on. I'm turning out three thousand words a day. Mm. None of it makes sense, but I'm turning out three thousand words a day. What's that all about? Well, when I'm in frenzy, it's the Sex Pistols, and when I've come to a con- when I've actually broken it, I, it's Beethoven. I, I think that's reasonable. I, I, I must admit, this you know, I I do lie. I'm rather keen on Holst. Um, I like his Planet Suite and some of his choral works. Uh, I love Elgar. Do like a bit of Elgar. Um, Beethoven, yeah, Mozart. But Beethoven hero because it, it it's the the whole death. I'm going to write a major symphony approach to the world. I, I I can relate to that. He he wants to write the greatest piece of work ever, and he's deaf. That's no bad thing. And and that to me, that that's the kind of thing that I I've always appreciated about Beethoven and and people like that. They want to break the mold. They want to they 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 they're critical before. Anybody even thought about being critical? I mean, there's just to me, he's a hero. Always has been ever since I was a young boy. When I first, when I very first heard that piece of music, the pastoral, um, I thought to myself, "Hmm, this is interesting." And then once, when I worked in a disco, wasn't doing anything other than cleaning floors and stuff that you do as a student, but uh, I had a copy, a full album. Of Beethoven's Fifth, and I sneaked onto the disco floor, and I put the album on, so I could hear it through the stereo system, and I literally blasted my own head off. It was. I still remember that in 1976, I think it was. Um, uh, the sound just because you know in those days we had horrible little records which yeah. were pretty useless what well, you know mono thing and and this this sound boost boomed out and it funny enough it was the same time that i came to appreciate shakespeare i was very lucky i had an english teacher who taught us how to appreciate shakespeare so my summer suddenly became going to the proms and going to stratford upon avon and and round when, when i got some money i actually used to do season tickets for the proms for maybe 10 15 years and we also with my friend we would do the whole season of shakespeare so we go and spend the whole two weeks just doing shakespeare and uh that that those were perfect for me the proms and shakespeare amazing isn't it how how music can it's like smells isn't it music can be just as equally you know evocative um and the pastoral suite is is, is Beethoven's finest work. But you're right; it has to be listened to be uh, listened to quite loudly um, to fully appreciate the layers of the music. There's a lot going on there in that suite. Um, yeah, but there's also in that in in a lot of Beethoven's music, you need the vibration in your fingertips because you to to understand how he was feeling stuff. I mean, when I went to his house and I saw these great big, I mean, they look like smoking pipes. Yeah. And they they have adjustments that they went into the into his ear, and they were like the first earphones, I suppose. 
Um, but they're massive. They rest on the ground and they're as big as a mammoth's tusk. Wow. And he used to stick these in his ears. So, he, But I, it struck me that the, the way he was getting the sound back was through the vibration. And if you if you play the stuff loudly enough and everything's vibrating, you can actually sense maybe that's how he was feeling the music. And you always you can always feel Beethoven's music. I mean, you know, especially the seventh, uh, not the seventh, the ninth. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> yeah, the, the ninth. Those, those great mood swings and what have you. So, well, anyway, have a chat. we're not here to talk about music, are we? No, we are not. We are going to talk today about two two very not different subjects, but, but sort of closely related. The first thing we're going to talk about is uh, birds of prey because this is going to form. Uh, part of a series of discussions, hopefully, um, around your your book, Birds of Prey, which I have started. Um, I've, I've stopped being selfish and done all my bits and pieces for Pen and Sword. And I now have... Oh, you're, you're pursing your lips. Only because I'm just amazed that you're, you're reading the book. So you're... <gasps> oh! I went to school in Mansfield, that's what I'm saying. It takes time. <laughs> um, Acknowledgements means. <laughs> I and I tell you what, actually, so I've started reading the book because it, 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 2021 has been absolute, not chaos, it's been very, very busy for me. Um, and this has been a nice break. And I and this is, for me, as, as a historian, I'm not a military historian, I'm, I'm a trade art historian, I'm sure I've said this before, this is really interesting because it's looking at the because some of the research methodologies I'm looking at I'm thinking I'm going to nick that idea I'm going to nick that idea I'm going to nick that idea and then as I'm reading the book especially the introduction the amount of work that has gone into this by by yourself um, and how you've coordinated the work of Bettina and, and everyone else is astounding um, so I'm rather enjoying it and I'm getting a bit of a social social history lesson about uh, German hunting culture. Uh, the late 19th century. I'm learning about GIS maps, which I have a very basic understanding of because I'm, I'm a foldy mappy, put it in your pocket bloke. Astounding that they were producing 25,000 maps a day during the war. Oh, that wow. was only a group centre. Yeah, and that's just one area, one area. Um, and and that alone, it, it, it sort of shattered quite a few illusions that I, I'd, I'd gained through either as a youth, um, through through poorly researched books very clearly where there is this sort of and, and i think part of this is <clears throat> people like sayer in his forgotten soldier have fed into this misconception on my part that <clears throat> the germans didn't have a great knowledge of the terrain in which they were operating in and clearly that's not the case um especially um when we're talking about the area covered by birds of prey um so so you know, the two things that are that stick out for me, the area, the, the geographical area this covers is huge. Um, you know, um, it, it, it stretches basically sort of from the Baltic down to Central Europe. Yeah. And that's an enormous area. If you if you do it on the basis of the Gauleiter of East Prussia, a guy called Eric Koch, it runs from from Memel, just north of Königsberg, right the way down to the whole of the Ukraine. 
it's and, and this is beautifully shown. If you go onto page twenty-two, uh, the first map, in fact, yeah, shows that beautifully. And then, and that's one thing I, I noticed that you look at other people's reviews, and it's a common thread. The, the maps here are exquisite. They're beautifully done. So thank you so so much. You you mentioned something about you know making notes of all the research and people I've worked with and all the rest of it. I mean. I, I was really pleased that Liverpool University Press allowed me to publish that uh, that diagram. Um, I know we go over things like who's the copyright owner and all the rest of it, but um, a lot of people didn't want me to produce stuff. So the Bundesvier, uh, the Bundesarchiv didn't want me to publish German maps, uh, um, their colour maps. Um, without a price and okay I understand that it's not a problem um, other people didn't want me to use photographs because of copyrights and you know you you end up spending uh, Valerie who was still at Ibidem Press at that stage and me were working through copyrights uh, and then Melissa later she became involved I mean it was just a, a it's an utter nightmare working out what you can and cannot use. Um, so what we settled on was a compromise. Um, but there was one point when I had to write to Liverpool University because it's the best. The The picture comes from Noakes and Pridham. They used they produced these th three or four volumes of books on German documents and readings yeah. and what have you. <clears throat> and as far as I remember, Jeremy Noakes <clears throat> department produced the map originally showing the occupation zones. Uh, and so I got in touch with Liverpool University Press thinking, no, oh, this is not going to be good. They're going to say no, although they're going to want money. And they said, just give us an acknowledgement. We're totally open access. Um, just make sure. So people wonder why I'm supporting Liverpool University Press on Twitter. And I always, you know, um, forward their books, um, some of which is not my interest, but simply out of a courtesy that some people have gone out of their way to help me. And um, they were very generous. Um, so I'm, I, I'm happy with that. Um, the National Archives pictures in the book, the photographs of zones and, in, um, and some of the ill treatment of civilians and what have you, they, they're all free access. Uh, a lot of the hunting pictures of Bundesarchi pictures. The maps that we created are from a German map which had no coordinates whatsoever that Bettina re-coordinated and then changed into a GIS map. Um, and the GIS maps, I don't know, I think there's 25 of them. I, I forget now, funny enough, having put Having written the thing, published the thing, gone through all the pain, I can't actually remember much about it these days. Um, and also my present work is taking my mind off it. Um, but I think all of those maps, um, when Ibidem said they wanted to publish them, I, I was, well, we were all very pleased because without the maps, you can't tell the story. And so, yeah, it's been a great thing. It's been a great picture, but if you look at the maps, we're, we're dealing in an area which would have been in the end. Excess of 500,000 hectares. Which is a large proportion, if not most of Wales. 
Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, that's that's about right. That's one sort of the the, the size I had in my mind. Um, uh, and then when you sort of add into the fact that that's heavily wooded, the, the area you're dealing with is heavily wooded as well. It's it's it, it, it takes on almost infinitesimal um, well, quality it, to it. Well, it's not just yeah, a scale of thing. You've you've also got a um, the battalion when it was the big when it when it was at its largest was about six hundred and seventy men. Um, the battalion, when it's reduced after Goering's um, disgrace, is reduced to about 330 men. And, you, and you're wondering, how on earth did they patrol such a large area with, with such small ratios of manpower? Um, and that's why you need the maps to understand what on earth's going on. Because with the Germans, you, you, you're forever dealing with grid references on maps. And if you don't really understand the maps and you don't understand where all the places are, it pretty much means that the, the combat reports that you're reading make no sense whatsoever. So uh, that, that, that's why there's so many maps in from big going down to individuals. And, and the maps are themselves exceptionally uh, well detailed and they're, they're exquisitely sewn. So, uh, and between the sort of overlays, especially with with the giz mapping. Well, she she um we we agreed that black and white would be better because you it reduces the clutter in your mind when you're looking at pictures and pa apparently people see grayscale better than they see yellows and purples and blues all competing with each other. So, um, we took the advice the black and white we 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 went ahead with. Um, and then a lot more photographs came from my personal collection of people of Luftwaffe men who either gave me pictures of of themselves who were in the fighting units or things I picked up at flea markets. Uh, obviously, over here in Germany, there isn't the high regard for a lot of this Nazi stuff. So yeah. you you find old photographs and old photograph albums on flea markets. Uh, uh, and I picked up several of them. There, there are a couple of photographs of companies and units which were relevant to the book. But a lot of the men, what I did was because I had the personnel files of the Luftwaffe men themselves with their actual photographs, I chose to take people of similar age and similar build and swap them out. Right, okay. That way I got round copyright law. Uh, sorry, private, what you call it, or, um, you know, data protection. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, it's, it's interesting you're sort of talking about copyright because that's, that is that itself has been, you know, again, on the Twitter sphere quite recently. Um, has it? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, the, the, yeah the, you know, somebody has been taking the, the copyright markings from videos of... A well-known organisation replacing them with their own, um, which nah, that's a bit of a no-no. You just don't do that. Um, but it's it, it is interesting when we sort of talking about open access to to documents um, and imagery, you know, especially for academic purposes um, and in historical readings. I, I think you look at NARA in particular; that they're very free and easy with their stuff, and the Americans have to be very generous actually with their resources. I have, I have to admit. Um, it'd be nice to see that replicated this side of the Atlantic. Um, to be honest, it, it, what I don't understand about all the modern copyright laws is not only because I'm not really very interested in them, but 
there used to be a thing that scholarship and research um, was copyright free. Yeah. Um, and if you'd written a book which was to advance knowledge, um, okay, yeah, I'm talking about a proper academic book, not not some you know uniform book, but if but if you've actually done some academic knowledge uh, and you're advancing academic academic knowledge. There was an understanding when I first published that, OK, here's the pictures, just use them. Um, now, when I went to the Bundesarchiv in 2006 for my first book, that they were bending over backwards to allow me whatever I wanted. Um, they photographed the, the, they obviously made copy copy of the of the pictures that they wanted me to look at. And originally they put a price on it. And then the publisher stepped in and said it was an academic book and was doing this and the other, and they just backed off. Said, no, no, okay. We, we thought it was for personal use. Um, what uh, what actually happened was, I think that the, there was a nominal sum of like, we'll pay 500 pounds if the books get to a certain level, uh, uh, and then we'll go from there. I, I don't know what happened, um, primarily because I've, broke contact with the publisher because they weren't paying royalties. But that aside, um, I think the Bundesarchiv received a check from the publisher after I'd sold 2000 copies, which was in the first six months of the publication of the book, Hitler's Bandit Hunters. Um, but at the time, I, I had no opposition. The problem I've had with uh, Birds of Prey is um, when I went for a photograph at the Imperial War Museum, they asked for, um, I think it was about £400 um, up front before we'd even published. Um, the Bundes Archive, as I said, were very uppity about not having certain Luftwaffe pictures published, but by the same token, they were quite happy to have the hunting pictures. Now, whether they thought the hunting pictures weren't going to be related to the Holocaust and therefore take them away and we don't care about it, um, who knows? Um, maybe they'll be a bit shocked now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it is interesting, you know, <clears throat> when talking about Imperial War Museums, the photographs, photographic use, I, th I think sometimes that they... The impression I've got, because a lot of it is, is covers creative, it's beyond the 75 year rule. Um, and it's out there, that, that's fine. I, I, th I do think they have a they have a little, I like to think they have a little stash of some very interesting photographs that they just don't put out there. And I think that can be a little bit sly when you look at Nara. Um, well, they put everything and anything out. When, when I went to get the pictures at the National Archives in America in Columbia Park, they were in a box. And there was no no index. Somebody had just thrown them in a box. So there's like hundreds of pictures in in a box. And I was having to go through all of this. Um, it, it, it was quite incredible. You'd have Hoffman pictures with US Signal Corps pictures all thrown in one box. And some on the back had um, details what they were and others didn't. Some were on contact sheets. I mean, the amount of contact sheets I got was quite incredible, but nobody seemed to care. And the folk, I mean, I don't know what it's like now, but when I worked at the photo department of the National Archives, 
back in the day. I spent a month in there um, watching films and what have you. I never saw anybody. It was one of those places where nobody seemed to care anything, um, unlike the captured archives, captured records department, which had three people working in it. The photographic place was totally quiet. It was a delightful place to work for in Columbia Park. Nobody, you could you could take as many pictures as you want. All you had to do was scan them into your own machine, which I did just tediously, hour after hour after hour after hour. I mean, I even got a whole train of uh, of SS men leading a German partisan into a into a wood and shooting him. Sorry, into a uh, forest uh, field to shoot him. So I mean, there's huge amounts of content, and and but nobody had even bothered to censor it, organize it, control it. Um, what probably people don't realize is that the Bundesarchiv, if you go in and you look at the the photographic books, an awful lot of pictures have been ripped out. And I think that's one of the reasons why Koblenz suddenly became very careful, because there was all these huge books of um, photographs, albums, and literally somebody had lifted them. And you knew that they were the usual things like the tanks or Rommel or what have you, uh, and then half inch them. Um, my my knowledge of what had gone on in the, in the Imperial War Museum, which I think I mentioned in some tweets recently, was what I discovered when I first went to research there, just to, just at the time when the Friends Association was be, was starting. Um, one of the guys was saying, while I was in the research room, um, that the Imperial War Museum had lost all its Battle of Britain records. Um, and I thought, <clears throat> I thought at the time it was very odd. Um, then I joined the Friends Association and I discovered it wasn't odd that there was always a problem with the museum. So, um, you know, the, the, these issues with copyright, with content. I've worked in what, 14 archives. And I think I've only had free access in one. It is interesting, sort of, you know, the challenges that we, that you and we, sort of, we all face when it, when it comes to um, to research, especially image research. But one one thing I, I I struggled with quite recently for something was the the, the Russian archives network. I can't get my head around it, and I found that the, that a lot of it is four hundred five. You know, you, you can't get any access to it. Um, and the, the TAS archives, which you know I I used ten years ago for something completely different. Um, Soviet agricultural machinery, actually. Um, you, you just can't, can't seem to find them. You can't get access. You can, the, the online presence seems to have virtually evaporated. It's, it's most peculiar. Uh, I, know, I know the Soviets didn't work, they, they didn't seem to have a great amount of, of photographic stuff from, from the Patriotic War, but even now, it, it, now it's even harder to get hold of stuff. I don't get with the, the, the whole copyright thing is you see the same pictures time after time after time, which now they, they must so pollute the atmosphere with them. You know, um, a Stuka dive in here, Churchill around the Tommy gun, all this stuff. 
It's been shown so many, so many times in so many publications, and it's 75 years later, and there's the Imperial War Museum demanding it has its copyright controls. No, none of that works for me. I just think it's ridiculous. Well, I mean, if you actually look at the legality of it, it sounds awful. The Imperial War Museum don't have a foot to stand on. They like to stand on because of the 75-year rule. And they're aware of that. And I think part of it is... It's not helped by certain people who have been manipulating certain elements of their work, and, not, and people not saying it's come from the Imperial War Museum. You know, they just this is a picture of, uh, and not not accrediting imagery. Um, what, you know, one it, of the interesting things I discovered is that if you actually get into the mindset of workaround, you suddenly find incredible things. Um, not always, but there are. <clears throat> there are huge alternatives out there. Uh, there. There are, and I think people, and, and again, this boils back down to the, the quality of research and, and research has to be done. Don't, start again. People can be lazy in their research methodologies. They can be lazy in what they're, they're looking for. They, they don't like to... They, they want the image to tell all of the story, not part of it. They don't see the, the image as part of the, the overall. They want it to tell you everything. Um, and because this lack of imagination of, of how we do the, the image research and how we present the image research can present us with issues in telling the story. Um, I think too many people rely on the photographs to tell the story and not tell the story the first, first way round. Um, too, too many people, I would say, go for the photograph and then build the book um, rather than create the book, create the narrative, do the research and then add the pictures. Um, but what do I you know? No. I, I don't I don't work in that field where photographs are essential. Um, OK, I've got photographs simply because um, it doesn't dawn on people straight away that you know, the book is okay. You mentioned the hunting and all of this other stuff. The the the, the book is about ordinary German soldiers. Fundamentally, it's about ordinary German soldiers. They're working in a, a period of time when there's Holocaust, genocide, Lebensraum, all sorts of Nazi policies, philosophies being enacted around them. But the actual core is a bunch of German soldiers and how they go through the process of what they've gone through um, without relying on post-war long-term uh, recollection or evidence. The whole thing is a reconstruction of German soldiers in 1940-45 um, based on their combat reports, based on their survival or death, based on their personnel files. Um, it's a reconstruction of yeah. of a battalion or a company or group of men and their officers over a set period of time. Now that to me is narrative. That's not it. Does, the, the photographs aren't going to make any more. They're going to give some il illustration. You know, Walter Freiburg was a battalion commander, what have you. But I've never really seen a, con a confirmed picture of the first commander, Emil Herbst. Um, there's a German author who who claimed it's Herbst, but Herbst hasn't got a personnel file. 
<clears throat> he's got no records. Um, and he just disappeared from the system. Uh, the, the, so in that sense, I had to build a story about a man who's got no face, but to also counterbalance that, one of the leading soldiers who I knew in intimate detail, you'll, you'll probably get to when you read the epilogue, is a, is a young man called Siegfried Adams. And Siegfried Adams, to me, is a metaphor of the national of the ordinary person in national socialism. He, he, he's in all the places where you'd think normal society is, and yet he's doing abnormal stuff. So to me, that's our Adams, although it's an epilogue, is actually the whole thing, really. <laughs> because it was finding him after I found the first records that struck me that what I was dealing with was an extraordinarily unusual tale, which was probably commonplace. So then I... You know, the pictures don't make the story, but the maps explain what they do. So I know we've gone around the subject here a bit and we've done going from archives and what have you, but archives would not explain Siegfried Adams. Photographs don't explain Siegfried Adams. Piecing his life together from a series of different documents and then sticking him on a map and showing his movements um, and what happened in his short period of his life, um, that, that's what I wanted to do, and that's what essentially the book was about. Other people have a different agendas, um, and, and we know who we could talk about, <laughs> but we're not going to, because you know, <laughs> it pulls the pants off me. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Thank you for that. You know, the, 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 you know how the, sometimes the archives are the be all and end all. I mean, again, talking about images, that's that's quite interesting. With myself, I've I've found that it's always best to write the book first, then get the images afterwards, because actually that's the best way to do it for me personally speaking. And I think when you start to build the the, the story around the image, especially with some of the the, the older images, you're on a bit of a hiding to nowhere. And as you already say, because you you become almost a slave to the cliched image of, of Churchill with a Tommy gone, Rommel standing out on the top of his horse, um, Montgomery leaning out of his, you know, his Lee tank. There, there are this, this, this series of images that, that, and also I think sometimes they can detract a little from the actual content. Uh, and then as you rightly point out, there are sometimes we just don't have those images. We don't have that, um, those resources. So we have to fill in the gaps ourselves. And, when that's explained, I think that's, that makes the book a little bit more, actually a lot more um, enjoyable and enticing because you're seeing the craftsmanship of the historian. And I think people tend to overlook that, that, you know, a historian is way more than an archivist. And that, that, that again, somebody's made a recent comment about that a historian doesn't discover anything new. I've never heard anything so daft in my life, to be brutally honest. Um, that's the whole idea of historians, you know, and, and, and perhaps the archivist may not or the recorder, but the, the, the individual who's doing the research will always find new new information. It's there, you just have to find it and, and in its right source and bring it all together. Uh, and that's where the challenge lies. Um, I think people's attitudes to what history is and what it should be and what it might be and what it could be and what it will be and all the rest of it 
uh, has become incredibly confused. I mean, back in the day when we were PhD students, me and, me and friends and colleagues would laugh at all of these senior historians writing defences of history. Because we'd say things like, well, you know, what is there to defend? We know what we're doing. Now I've got to this age where, you know, books and articles behind me and I look at why his senior historians wrote what they did back then. We're, we're now in the same place. I mean, I'm, I'm talking with colleagues of, from various universities and we're having the same discussion that we dismissed so much in the 90s. We're actually now having that discussion, you know, how how does history work? How how do we defend our subject? I mean, for me, as I think I've said a few times, with with being so ill for so long, I've kind of woken up as Rip Van Phil. And 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 I look around me and I think I I recognize this terrain, but I don't understand it. And and I listen, I listen to people. Well, listen, I, I watch a lot of what's being said. I, I see and hear a lot of things being said and I read a lot of stuff on Twitter and on on the Facebook stuff, uh, whatever you call it. Um, and it just. I don't know, it disappoints me really, I suppose it's like. It's like expecting rhubarb crumble with with hot custard and this thing turns up and yeah. <laughs> It's, it's it's not only got cold; it's got soggy, and it's served up. <laughs> <laughs> it's served up on a plastic plate with a plastic fork, and you look at it and you think, "No, not today." It, 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 <laughs> that's an interesting, and that, that's a very good analogy, actually, because again, yeah, you, there, there are some some books, some history books that are like you know, they they promise the world and they deliver. I mean, how many history? I, I mean, I've been on Twitter now for what two, just under two years. Um, actually, physically twittering since April 2020, and I think in that time we've had what two or three 12 SS Panzer Division books published. Yeah. Um, all all telling us that they've discovered new stuff. Um, all with crazy covers which have no relationship to anything that's even mildly comprehensible. Um, but also I think we've, uh, Richard Holmes would say, if it's fantastical, it's probably fantastical and therefore a load of rubbish. Um, and and I, I kind of, go along with that now if you hear a story where somebody's made up a ridiculous kind of remark um you just automatically dismiss it and and i don't know during this bastoying two weeks which have which have been on television and on youtube and everything that's been going on about it i've i've heard some pretty marvelous stuff but i have heard some <laughs> Oh, and, and that's and that's face that's so serious crap. <laughs> oh, that's that's interesting. You should mention Bastoy, and and this in a way sort of is going to link to to part of the conversation uh, today. Um, you know, the, the this I, I've I've always found it quite intriguing. The, the 
the, the use of living history groups within sort of celebration of key events and especially Bastogne and I've been looking at some of your photographs and some of your videos of interest especially the use of the M47 pattern I noticed that earlier today and I thought oh there we go that's that's that really classic film uh Battle of the Bulge uh, a great film which was where was it filmed in, in the Sierra Nevada desert or something Spain Spain oh, Sergio Leone territory wasn't it really was yeah um, I don't know where they got the snow from, excessive dandruff, I suppose, but it, 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 it's, <laughs> I mean. And then you compare, was it Battleground, which was the first one with your man, Wrath of Khan Man? Yeah. I, I thought that was brilliant. And then you have that. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, one of, one of the, re I mean, people say, you you know, if you're a professional history historian, you can't really go down the living history route. I actually think living history is really very helpful. And it's certainly been very helpful to me. Um, because it was through living history, I discovered how certain things worked. I remember uh, one of those was when I went and spent a whole weekend with the English Civil War people, because I really did want to understand how those pipes and things worked. And, and they were quite happy to let me try it out and work it out and understand it better. And at the same time, the guys of Oliver Cromwell's army with their horses and their heavier gear and all the rest of it, they were really instructive. And I, I found all of that interesting because, okay, I'm going off a bit beat here, but one of the American Civil War historian, uh, soldiers that I took a great interest in called himself Rupert of the Rhine as a child. So to understand where Sir Percy Wyndham saw himself as a cavalry officer in the American Civil War, you have to understand Cromwell. Because he had spent all his days as a young boy understanding Rupert of the Rhine and fighting Cromwell and the shock tactics, you know, the, the rapid charge, the thunder strike you know, um, Blitzkrieg before Blitzkrieg. And you know, and I, I just, that kind of thing with living history, those guys, I think it was the Battle of Ludlow in 1990, yeah, about 1990. I mean, it just truly fascinated me how they, how they worked that out. Um, I've been to a lot of English heritage events. I think the last one I went to was in 2018, where there's all these reenactors. But I've also been to reenactors which, where reenacting is totally inappropriate. So I think, you know, as a historian, when I when I wrote Birds of Prey, okay, we've talked about the maps now, we've talked about the pictures, but to have had some sense of how German soldiers worked by spending time with people who reenacted German soldiers and at the same time spending an awful lot of time, I mean hours and hours with old German veterans, literally talking about the kind of work they did. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not talking about fighting and killing Jews and all the things that, you know, people focus on now, but actually how they did write their diaries, when they wrote their diaries, how the reports were filed into the system learning all of that minutiae gives you an impression of the nature of the bureaucracy behind the German military system. And it's funny, once you know it, every time you look at something, 
you've got all of the pattern. And and I think the living history guys, to a certain extent, they they found out the 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 important points. Like I think Nick with the MG42, he's been through all the training models and the change of barrel systems and bullets. Well, I mean that's all brilliant stuff. And I think it's important that that kind of thing we do know because if. You know, if you try to get in touch with the Bundeswehr and say, well, how did the MG42 work in 1943? The response is we don't we don't work with people like you. Um, so you are so you are dependent to a great deal on living history people. And, and I see them covering all kinds of things which are politically incorrect, you know, like the Confederates in the American Civil War. Uh, I'm sure an awful lot of Irish people don't like Cromwell's Roundheads. Um, there's enormous numbers of people who I know um, from the colonial side of my studies who find people putting on red tunics quite offensive. Um, my own family is particularly revolted against Union soldiers, which I, I've taken an interest in, and they particularly dislike, deeply dislike uh, the Buffalo soldiers because part of my family are Native American Indians. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I've, I, when, when it comes to reenactment stuff, I've always had to tread on eggshells. Um, the three uncles who were pretty much deranged by the Second World War, funny enough, said, well, you know, you should go and find out about the Germans because they caused us a lot of pain and agony and good you find out about them. So, so on the one side, <laughs> on the one side, I've got my mother saying you will never wear a union uniform or, or my auntie saying, no, you will never wear an English Civil War uniform because she's Irish. Um, I've got other uncles who you think, well, you, know, you won't wear German uniforms, say to you, well, don't wear the uniforms, but at least find out how they worked. So we're our product of our family and, and, and how we see things. So I've never really been against all the reenactment stuff. Uh, and I would say, I, could, I couldn't honestly say, well, you know, on the day that I met the chaps who were wearing Luftwaffe uniforms and running around with, mm, 98k rifles and what have you that on that moment i had a better understanding of the, the luftwaffe boys in the forest in biovisha um but it certainly helped you know because how else am i going to pick up one of those rifles if you go to the imperial war museum they're not going to say oh pick that up and try it well they're not now because you know the person in charge is trying to pacify the place but if you'd have gone back in the day when Noble Franklin was around, he'd have said, yeah, try the rifle because it's the only way you're going to understand the weight ratio and, and, and how the things worked. It's only through living history, linking up with the hunting circles and then doing a little bit more research, I discovered that the, the German carbine is actually a hunting rifle. It's based on a Mauser hunting rifle. Uh, and that's interesting because you're giving, this is something that's been said before and um, having used rifles myself uh, for a variety of reasons, I would agree with that. You know, the K98 is, it is very much in its design, a hunting rifle. It's designed for 
medium to long range kill of, of large animals. Um, you, know, you break it down into, into its various elements, um, but from a personal perspective. But it's very funny. You talk to a British infantryman and he'll say to you, well, the, the Enfield is the best rifle ever because you can kill somebody at 1,500 metres. Well, I've looked with binoculars, <laughs> and I've still not been able to see somebody at fifteen hundred meters. Yeah, I, I think that, that that's something that's I th that's one of those lovely myths that came about, wasn't it? Really, through the the nineteen nineteen Afghan uh, emergency, where somebody got a lucky shot, uh, shot off with a with a SMLE, and hit somebody. Um, it always struck me as a pretty heavy, lumpy piece of kit, whereas the the German 98K seems to me to be perfect for the kind of role that the German soldiers want to be. But then, you know, this is where we, this is where we get into these endless discussions. Hey, well, well, what kind of soldiers were the Germans, and how did they fight? Well. Again, it's like it's like what what I've been hearing lately in the last two weeks of the Bastoid and various other discussions and all the rest of it. I mean, it cracks me up. I, I just sort of going back very very quickly to to the the, the, the comparison of the rifle. I mean, the, the Lee Enfield was a fighting rifle. There's no two ways about it. It looks a fighting rifle. It looks it's it's not something you would go out to disappear into the woodland to come back with a with a deer. It, it's something you went out and you used it in a mark applied all the marksmanship principles to you lay down a fuse laid a fire and you got people set down. There is something almost delicate about the K ninety eight the ninety eight K that there is. I, I personally from from my perspective in terms of its aesthetics, in terms of its build, it isn't an archetypical infantry's weapon, is it? it it's not well, the great thing about the Lee Enfield when you run out of bullets is you can hit somebody with it and it will hurt. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, from, exactly. You know, it it was. It, they, these things were often used as clubs, especially by the Chindits, you know. Um, whereas, they... <laughs> whereas I think that there's a whole different skill set required to be a German infantryman with an anti-8K. It's a different rifle, isn't it? And And... Once you get that into your head that you're not comparing apples and pears, uh, apples and apples, that actually you're dealing with apples and pears, then the whole thing changes. I mean, you know, when I first read, this is, this is perhaps a, a crazy confession to some people, when a military historian who's now become a Holocaust historian is now doing memory history, has gone through a process, but you go through a process. When I first read Nonning, there's a there's a soldier in the book that you're going to come across called Nonning, who rapidly on a in an area of between 150 between 50 and 150 yards and maybe 500 yards, can't remember which. Um, he saw several Jews running across in the in the silhouette against the back of the forest. They broke cover. He unslung his 98K, and we and I believe, given the report that was issued, that he killed five Jews as they broke cover and tried to escape. And it led to a major investigation and hunt for the rest of the Jews that had escaped. Um, so I'm sorry to jump your book, 
reading, but there is this one point. The, the, the fact of the matter is, though, in the story, is I would never have understood that somebody could unsling that 98K rifle and get those shots off like that. I, I just, I'd have said that's madness. But now I understand the rifle. Now I understand how the German soldiers hunt and how the German soldiers fired and how they fought. You can say, yeah, fine. Because he's a corporal of rifles, an Oberjäger. He's probably um, fairly well trained in the Luftwaffe scheme of things because he's leading a patrol. He's fired. His his um, his senior officers have mentioned him him in dispatches purely for this shooting event, uh, yeah. and he's achieved it. He's done it. He's killed five people on the fly, in rapid shots while they're running against a silhouette. Well, I'm sure if you actually asked a British infantryman in 1944 to do the same, a you'd have a problem getting him to just run, fire at a load of civilians who are running around. It'd also take him a little bit longer to unpack his, his Lee Enfield, and then he's got to go for all that bolt action stuff, hasn't he? Whereas that's a whole different process he's going to go through to the German soldier who's just firing off his carbine. And that's distinctly different character and culture of soldiering. And I appreciated that once I'd spent time with the living history people. You've gone quiet. Yeah, it's because, it's because I'm, 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 you're making a very rapid, very valid point here because we're now sort of getting into the realms of weapon handling, marksmanship principles, where we're looking at how the weapon is, we, you know, designed. And I'm going through my own mind in handling, having handled both weapons. You know, the K98 is lighter, it's a lighter weapon, I, I found. It's and, and and as you're talking, I'm I'm going through a mind. Target assault, it is easier, I think, to get off rapid rapid round fire with the, the with with the, with the 98 as it is to the SMLE. With the SMLE, where you know, in in the hands of an experienced and proficient marksman or markswoman, it can be fired quite rapidly. But because it's a heavier weapon, I think firing it at a moving target present certain challenges. And I, I don't can't remember, but Richard Holmes did these programs where he showed how you fired certain weapons. So he had a he had the machine gun. Hmm. Lewis not the Lewis, the big fat thing on Oh the Vickers, yeah the Vickers was the and then he had um he had a Lee Enfield and he was showing how you bolt action fire and all the rest of it and how he was getting the shots off and all the rest. What you never actually saw was the target he and I, I always laughed then because I think if I'd have seen him, he'd already been, he was already dead when I saw the program. So, you know, it passed. So no chance. But if I'd have seen that program while he was alive, I'd have said, I want to see your sheet of hits. <coughs> I, I think, I think with, with the, with the Enfield, I think you'd have had a very wide grouping, you'd, you know. Um, grouping? <laughs> <laughs> There'd have been three shots and a slightly startled cow. Total <laughs> <laughs> dispersal. Yeah. yeah, you know it was. I, I know. I know the British Army and rightly so do 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 sort of pride themselves on their um, marksmanship um, 
you know, the business shooting things, it's ingrained. But again, it's the style of shooting and hunting shooting is completely different again, because what you're you're asking people, you're you're training people and often using subsonic rounds. You're looking at people using, taking into account lead time and stuff like that. Um, so you know, the, the mouser automatically lends itself to that almost that area and that arena. It's quite interesting. Um, I can't remember where it is in the book now, but I actually sat down um, and looked at the training film of Luftwaffe personnel going through their basic training and their shooting. And a lot of it showed them, you know, hit the ground, fire, move, hit the ground, fire, yeah. move, and so forth. But there was also that other thing that they were doing, which is firing at the butts where they rest the gun on a cushion so they get the firing mechanism right and everything's all lined up. And then once they've done that, then they do competition shooting. And and I thought the way this is operating with officers, NCOs and ordinary folk just getting on with the work of shooting is perhaps not how it would be with the British Army. There was, there was an air of not not so much competition and rivalry and heights and, and what have you. What there was, there seemed to be a camaraderie of making the people shoot better. And I thought that's really interesting because they're focusing on that young man. And, and then I saw that they did the same thing when soldiers were saluting incorrectly. And they were showing them how to do it. And I thought, you know, this idea that the German NCO is this ugly, screaming, what have you, um, isn't the case that they're, they're instructing the soldiers in a form of training which is really intense and they're getting to a standard faster because they're showing care. That's interesting, though. I think so. This is no, no. This is interesting because I think we there is this misconception, and like you say, and, and driven by by contemporary propaganda, of of the of the brutalized, the brutalistic NCO, uh, and perhaps reinforced by sort of um, certain authors in the seventies, you know, of, of that sort of genre of pulp fiction as war material. If you looked at Cross of Iron, excellent film. You see a bunch of boys at the very start try and take out a, a mortar position. Yep. And I looked at that many, 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 many times because I wanted to compare it with how German soldiers operated in the east, in the forest, and also significantly in the 1944 chapter of the book, which is the retreat. When they, when they fight, I mean, this bunch with second-hand equipment and, and what have you fight an extraordinary kind of retreat. And it struck me then, and, I, and I, with more and more reading about individual soldiers and then actually sitting talking with a soldier who, who got the, the storm, you know, the ground attack award three times for going over the top then, had been shot in the stomach. Um, 
I, I talked to him about the way the German soldiers thought about the assault and how this level of aggression. And it struck me then that what's inspiring this level of aggression, this competence, this capability in their heads that they can achieve this stuff is the fact that their NCOs are strong. And I'm not saying that they're beating them up in strength. They are strong character leaders. And this is an interesting conversation because this is now developing into, you know, what is a leader? Um, and, and, and strong leadership does make for better unit cohesion. We sort of, we know that both through, through lived experience and, and through, through sort of historical studies. Um, but you see, I could see that in the maps in the book. So not only are the maps ordering the detail of the information that we've been acquiring from the archives and the maps explaining how they operated, but the activities that they were with the, the maps were showing showed the cohesion of the company, the squads, uh, the hunt commandos, the Yag commando, uh, and the battalion itself. Um, when they fight the retreat against tanks, and they've got a couple of captured Soviet anti-tank guns, and they're perpetually holding off these counterattacks, and you've got this sergeant writing a report afterwards, you know, we had this casualty, that casualty. There isn't an, there is nowhere do you get the impression that he's suggesting that his troops are crap. And, they, and again, that's interesting because that shows that the, the there's a, there's a mutual respect there, isn't there? There's, you've got the respect of the subordinate being able to be when being faced by an armor assault using a captured equipment must have been terrifying. You know, you, you, it's not something I can imagine, uh, nor nor would I want to. Um, but then when you've got the NCO who is openly supporting his troops, again, that starts to flies in the face of a lot of assumptions of leadership within a totalitarian state right but that doesn't mean that there weren't idiots oh no you, you know you, you'll always get as they say the strokers won't you well we got one idiot um and he's the only one who lost his whole yag commander including himself um i think there were about 40 odd people killed in the exit in the action and the problem was he was just charging into the guns like some kind of Tennyson moment, you know. Um, there were several machine guns set up, and he charged his squad into the into the middle of this swampland uh, against these machine guns, and they were wiped out to a man. Now the the thing is, again, without without the the GIS work to work out the position of the troops, we'd never have worked out how this thing happened. By going back to looking at the ground and the swamp area, we understood how these things happened because you saw what the swamps looked like. By talking to the living history people, we understood how certain things did or did not work in mud and slush. And one thing that certainly didn't work very well in mud and slush was an MP40 because the mechanism jammed. And that could explain why Rudolf Trabers was killed in that fight um, because it appears he didn't get well from what I can tell he didn't get any bullets off from his MP40 
Um, so, you know, okay, we're, we're talking about, you know, background things here, research and documents and all the rest of it. There were no photographs of the, of, of the dead men or the incident afterwards. Uh, there was a military inquiry, but again, there was no photographs of the ground. So we had to reconstruct the whole thing from the reports, the way the Germans had written them. Um, having read the report, it was pretty clear that the, the number two commander of the battalion thought the sergeant was an idiot, but didn't say this guy is an idiot. Just kind of this guy wasn't really very good and they ran into a trap. So the, the, the report's there, but you see a similar situation where a soldier has done something stupid and he's been killed by his by by stupid actions. They don't do anything. So there's no military band. For the funeral. And the funeral isn't cited because he was an idiot. And he got himself killed because he did something stupid. Yet two lads who are caught up in a firefight and get overwhelmed, but take down a whole load of Russian soldiers and had no choice but to pretty much die for the fight, they get a band, a band of honour. So living history couldn't tell me those stories. That was having to work out, you know, all the procedures that you're seeing. Banned, no band, banned, no band. Um, how it was reported, how it wasn't reported. And it's very interesting that the Germans are very, are very clever at writing nothing in volumes. I mean, volumes and volumes and nothingness. They're very good at that. They can actually write a report where they say nothing and it's still a combat report. Uh, this is this is actually this is a really good session because you know we we, we you know we're sort of introducing the um, the old bird, birds of prey book. I mean, just because because I'm, I'm mindful of the time and, and and a few other things. The one thing that did did stick out um, as I've been sort of reading uh, and, and a lot of people I know when you're reading books such as this nature you will come across terms you've never come across before and you think what's that and then that leads you down a rabbit hole of discovery now for me the, the, the one thing that really stuck out and it and, and it was a learning curve and we did have a discussion about this prior to chat prior to meeting up today in recording was the term zutalin i thought what is that so i looked it up and phil's just feels very kindly shown me uh, an example before we started and I've taken a screenshot middle for it's formed the the beginning you know the the, the cover of, of this podcast. Wow, I mean, it is it's a very strange form of writing, isn't it? Yes. Um, I first came across it when I started the research, and to be honest, I struggled like all uh, Brits and well people from the Anglo sphere when you. It's not something that you're, you're taught when you go to the Goethe Institute to do your German classes. Um, it's this it's this form of writing which existed pretty much up to about 1945 and then faded away. It's an institutional form of um, 
of what I would call a nationalist handwriting form. Um, and there were set practices of the, of the way you wrote this, and it was taught in the schools, especially for younger, uh, for the working classes, where there was a consistent pattern of writing. Um, when I when I spoke to German soldiers, um, like the one in the family, who's a Luftwaffe, who's a former Luftwaffe parachute sergeant, um, and uh, another one who was a Stasi officer, bless his cotton socks. Um, they could understand it because they'd been taught it. But the next generations couldn't understand it. And I, I saw it rather um, intimately when um, my partner's father died and the family Bible was taken out. Uh, and both of the chaps from the past were able to read without any problem that handwriting where nobody else could. Um, so yes, uh, an awful lot of academics coming to work in German archives suddenly discover that they have to deal with this Zutelin. And it's certainly not very easy. Um, but we had the additional issue, which is taken the photograph you took a picture of is the war diary, um, is this military Zutelin, which has got all the tactical stuff in it and what have you. Uh, and so we actually had to ask a couple of German soldiers to work out a couple of phrases that we truly couldn't understand. Um, now, okay, um, I, I, I'm not using it because I'm not seeing it because I'm not seeing it because very few of the German records um, survived the siege of Arnhem, uh, Aachen. So I, I'm not seeing it now, but if you look at a German, if you look at most German soldiers' personnel files, they're mostly completed in Zutelin. Uh, certainly most of the death cards are completed in Zutelin. Um, I think, I think you'll find that Zutelin is still used by a few oldies mm -hmm. who write to each other in it so that the children don't know what they're talking about. Um, <laughs> which, <laughs> which used to make me hoot because I remember one of them saying to me, you know, we only write in Zutaline so that no, none of the youngsters know what we're talking about. We can be as rude and offensive as... as <laughs> <laughs> I, I can imagine actually most of that was bloody kids. <laughs> yeah, and other things. Perhaps, perhaps things we shouldn't know. No, no, that's things, that's things not to know or guess about. Um, one of the guys, one of the old veterans, I, I couldn't work out whether the figures were estimated killings or they were actual killings, and they were, because they, 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 those kind of numbers can feature at times. Yeah. And the, the, the Zutalin, the, the, the way he'd written it, I couldn't understand the page. And he, and this old boy looked at it and he said, oh, that's easy, it's all actual. 
and, uh, and he said, uh, and he, he said, ah, said enough after was doing what we were doing. <laughs> I'm so, oh, okay. <laughs> that was it. That was like, you know, well, we're all doing it. Happy days. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it is. It is interesting, you know, that this um, because I have I have come across before. That, sorry, go on. Let, let let me tell you, when you talk to a veteran, you don't go up to him and say, "Are you a war criminal?" Because he will just look at you as if you are like you know dead from the neck up. But if you go what I call the little heart indirect route, and you go and say, "How do you deal with this piece of paper?" They'll get all very keen. And then in passing, they'll comment on it. And it's that passing comment, which is probably the most important. It's interesting you should say that because the, the passing comment is like you say, it's often the one, it's often the incriminatory comment, isn't it? Um, well, mostly they've, most they've, insightful. They've, relaxed. they've been so relaxed about what they've been doing that they don't, that then the, the guards are down. Um, it's like when the, this this old friend of mine was talking about being wounded at the, in Smolensk in 1943. You know, he he got so arrogant at going over the top and winning his awards, he didn't really think what he was doing, and the bullet hit him um, just below the kidney, and so he had as much as many problems as perhaps I've had in, since my operations. But <laughs> he he. He had a very unusual approach to life, which was, you know, when 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 things were tough, he went back to his Wehrmacht days. Yeah, he, yeah. He, 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 you know, if somebody was not correct, he'd go for the bayonet. If somebody was, you know, being troublesome, he'd get the broomstick and the bayonet out. And if it was, you know, if it was the full Monty, then he'd be out there waving both of them at of the students for having a party or whatever. I mean, he, <laughs> it, it, it was amazing how this old stuff used to just pour out at the slightest release mechanism. But then on the other hand, I've been at parties where um, a relative has said to a, a, a veteran, you know, what was it like in the Second World War? And the, and the, and the old veteran has turned around and said, none of your business. That's <laughs> 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 really. I, I, th I think people also again, and that, that raises quite an interesting point. Is getting people to talk because not everyone wants to talk about it. You know, we we've all uh, we we had a very the same with with the relative. Didn't want to talk about it. You know, went to war, came home. What's you know what what's on TV? Um, so that's quite interesting. My, my great-grandfather had lost his eldest son in the Great War and he'd had two other sons wounded. And um, in the Second World War, he had three sons in the fighting. And one got wounded at Tobruk. Um, one was severely damaged during the Blitz because he was on the tower. Uh, and another one, well, he was a bit psychotic. And... Um, because my grandmother was the eldest, she was she took on what he started, which is great granddad would talk to them when they had difficult periods about their war and past. And he said, whatever you do, 
until these boys pass, they've got to be spoken to. So, you know, I, d I, I didn't come from a family where you didn't talk about the war. So I suppose I was able to learn to communicate with veterans um, because of the, um, the mental, psychological issues that the family had to cope with, with these three um, Second World War veterans. And when I spoke later with veterans, especially around about the 1990s time when there was the 50th anniversaries, I remember talking to two very, very famous British soldiers and realising that my conversation with them was a different conversation that they were having with all the others. You know, the big people would talk to Howard, you know, Major Howard, and say, what was it like running across the bridge and all the rest of it. And, uh, you know, I was talking to him about slightly other things and perhaps the information that I was hearing was a lot more, I don't know, less, less the charge across the bridge and more about what life's like after you've been a soldier and then suddenly you're not. Um, and coming to terms with the past. Um, the Germans use it a lot. I think Brits don't use it so much and I think we're worse for it because coming to terms with the past, I don't think we'd have all this glorification of war which seems to be the thing in Britain. You know, it's like a lot of things, isn't it? People who glorify things weren't necessarily there. Um, no. And, and I think the, and I mean sort of directly, you know, the, the I, I've, I'm, I'm very much like you, I find that the glorification of war is is distasteful at best and you know and at worst well I, there's no words for it and, I, and it doesn't tend to be I, I i can appreciate some people look at it you know just for various reasons nostalgia it, it is a point of cultural reference that somehow they think that that's when we, you know, as a nation we all pull together and, and all the rest of it and they take it very much on face value for what it was and what it is in their minds but overall, war is not a very pleasant thing, and it should never be glorified. Um, and, you, and you were very, you know, and those who glorify it perhaps uh, don't. You, you do certainly don't see other cultures do it um, to the extent that perhaps we do. You know, this whole nonsense of a blitz spirit. Well, if you use that analogy constantly while looking, talking about, for example, the current pandemic, and you're not wearing a mask, well, I don't mean to be funny. Were you the idiot down the street who didn't draw your curtains closed because the Luftwaffe bomber aircraft hadn't been over your, been over your house? You know, it's that sort of mentality I don't really don't get. Um, and it's also the other thing: you're standing on the wings of giants, isn't it? All concerned, I think most people were quite frankly the impression I get. Probably on exception, most people were quite glad at the end of the war and didn't really want to talk about it because it, it wasn't a pleasant experience. And people forget that. Yeah, I think I think that's the case. I mean, I I don't um, I don't like British military histories or American military history, but I'm going to be doing. I'm I'm known for not writing that stuff, and I suppose it's been easier for me to be more critical of events and history and do the full history thing um, with a subject matter which as well they're the ultimate evil people and you can write whatever you like about them I mean that that forces you another responsibility not to just write rubbish 
actually be very even more testing of your critical study and your critical writing. But I think a lot with the British history, I mean, I read one recently and it kind of went on, and then this and then that and then the other. And frankly, I've never been so bored in all my life. But the, the, the problem is with those kind of books is I wonder whether they're that they play on the nostalgia of war and British exceptionalism and all of that stuff. I don't think they're very inquiring. Um, I don't think they they do much service to British military history, to be honest. Um, although I say that as a person who's rapidly leaving military history, it has limited. It can only go so far. It doesn't have. It doesn't have the ability to expand into areas which are not, quote, pure military history. You know, it, 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 military history, you see it struggle with culture. And, and it's very interesting. These, these military, whatever they call them, military history books of regiments or division, British divisions, regiments and armies and Monty and whoever, they, they, they do struggle with the stuff, the content not pure military history. You see them struggle on things like sex or drinking or life or before and after and retirement. But you, you watch the book, it literally fades at the end. Oh, he went into retirement and that was it. Like, so he fought those four years and then that was the end of him, was it? And yet most of them, if you look at Montgomery, he's had two wars. He's had life before the war between the wars and after the war. And yet a lot of that, I mean, I know Nigel Hamilton got into all kinds of notions of devia deviousness and deviant behavior, but I'm not sure that whether that was really the case either, because it was all based on supposition. So I, you know, you, you, I just don't think that military history has the ability to really tease out that stuff which is not military history and so I, I you know I said this to Matt Bone the other day that I'm, I'm pretty much more in the politics of violence uh, war and conflict rather than the culture of military organization rather than pure military history I just don't think it I don't I, these days I don't think it has the breadth It's interesting you should say that. I, I think that, I mean, for my card. Something else. Let me just go back on this and I, over what's happened before. That's why they struggle with GIS maps and new technology. And that's why military history has a problem with things like living history. Yeah. Because in the living history world, you have to compromise because, well, you haven't got a 19-year-old waste, waistline in the 1920s and you haven't got you haven't got the kind of lifestyle so you have to make compromise i think the problem with 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 the military histories world is it's so set with a pattern that you have to live with that pattern come what may and they don't criticize a lot of military historians don't criticize the information that they're receiving and saying to themselves well maybe like this was a load of old rubbish. I mean, it's very interesting that Kevin Heimel a couple of nights ago was talking about 
the foresight that Patton was supposed to have had, which was in his diary, was actually made up by his mother or his wife um, two years after his death. She wrote the whole story. Now, the problem there is that story went into the historiography and has remained in the literature for the next 75 years. Kevin comes along and says, it was a load of old tosh. But what do we do? Do we just hum a tune and say, oh dear, we found something new today, dum-de-dum-de-dum, go down the shops, have a beer? Or do we turn around and say, okay, what is the impact of that tosh on the literature? How is it going to change? And yeah, I know I sent a little tweet out, which was a bit, you know, contentious, like Monty is the greatest general, but he was. And thank you very much, Kevin Highmore. You proved it for me. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I, my, I, give Monty his dues. I, you know, we, we've had this conversation before. I, I personally feel that he dropped the ball a little. He dropped no, he, just, he dropped the ball, uh, Market Garden. He, he, you know, personally speaking. But when you look at what he achieved, and that the fact that he was messing around with amphibious assault in 1938 as a divisional commander, and he could see the way things were going. And the fact that he was willing, and I always find this quite interesting, he was willing almost to be subordinate to Air Marshal uh, Conningham's sort of air ground, um, you know, use of air force, in a, you know, as a ground support tool in North Africa. Intriguing. You know, he showed the man was flexible. He showed the man was willing to take on new concepts. He showed the man was willing to push new concepts. Uh, I, I think with, with Market Garden, there was a need for a quick win. And it was a rushed concept. I mean, the, the idea, if the geography hadn't been against him and a whole lot of things, the idea was sound enough. It was just the execution went horribly wrong. Um, I mean, the thing I get with Montgomery is, you know, he, he is one of Britain's quote hero generals. But how many Brits really have written a lot of nice things about him? Um, I actually met him in 1967, so I have an interest. Um, and I also went to his funeral in 1972. Um, but it, 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 it always struck me as odd that people, some British people, including scholars, write nice things about Rommel, who wasn't a very nice man. No, he wasn't. He was awful. And he was a war criminal, of course, because of his yeah. behaviour in Yugoslavia and for letting uh, Orador slide. But that aside, um, you don't get the same the same kind of, or you didn't get in the 50s and 60s and 70s, people saying, well, you know, Monty's the greatest general that's ever lived and all the rest of it. Whereas, you know, in nearly all the time that I've been doing history, there's been these row upon row of supporters of Patton and Bradley and even Alexander, who, you know, pulled the pants off anybody. But the 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 the, the, the it, Montgomery got all the brickbats from the whole of the th of the whole of the war, and you've got to wonder why. And then when you find information which is, you know, distorting the facts, telling us another story, that story then gets embellished. People like Chester Hansen say, you know, great things based on that story that Patton had all this foresight, and of course he didn't. Um, the, 
you 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 have to under you have to ask why. Yeah. It it is interesting. I, and and a thought came into my came to mind when you when you were discussing this was because is it partially because during this period you know of military history that we're discussing in the fifties to seventies he was alive for it. Um, could it be that that perhaps had an influence? Um, I think it was he was an abrasive character, got up under a whole load of people's noses. And given the opportunity, when those people wrote a book, they were very unpleasant. The problem is, you know, it's, it's like all of that veteran memory stuff. You've got to be very careful how you use it. And that's another side of the military history world, which doesn't sit well with me, is that somehow a veteran can say something. First, he's automatically a hero because he's a veteran. Mm. Secondly, Every word that he says is fantastic memory. And third, you know, it's valuable history. Well, is it? Okay, I, I've listened to German veterans to understand how how writing a diary worked and how it was operated in practice. But I wouldn't say, well, thanks to so-and-so, I have been able to dissect this diary and I can understand that this and the other. I've just learned the techniques. There's a difference between learning the techniques and understanding how things work uh, to then applying to, to suggesting that the person who's taught you those techniques is the greatest fount of all knowledge and history. It's not. It, it is interesting when, you, when you're talking about veterans. I, I, I read something a few, gosh, quite recently, actually, and they were talking about it, it was they'd the, been talking to to members of a certain regiment, and the guy who'd been doing a lot of the recordings said the one thing that he noticed was that stories would often get embellished. And I think you've said this in the past as well that when 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 stories are recounted by veterans, and you go back to the subject, there's a little bit more added every time. And then is and and there's almost this sort of slight unreliability of sort in sort of source. In some of the information you're getting and so as a historian we have to be quite you know you have to be quite careful of that and if this then go we can we then go down the route don't we of cross-checking it and this leads us almost straight back to the reports contemporaneous reports unit histories especially post-war um so which weren't perhaps the most accurate to, but to try and get a more complete picture of what actually went on what was going on well i you see, I, I've had experiences with veterans which have been incredibly funny. I mean, so funny, it just completely wet myself. But there have also been those, moment, those moments with veterans where it's been very distressing. I mean, it's not talked about so much now, but when the boys paraded in Normandy in 1994 on the beach at Aramanch, Nobody had taken into consideration that the tide was coming in. So all of those old boys were splashing around in water. And then they made to stand on parade while the Queen did her thing. Then they came off and it was quite a distance between where the coaches were to pick them up and the Salvation Army tent and the beach. But I can assure you by the time a lot of those boys, having been out there since about I think since about three o'clock. By the time they got to the Salvation Army tent where they started to be attending, um, 
they were beginning to get the first I, um, the first symptoms of hypothermia because they're old and their bodies yeah. cope with the cold. So we had a huge problem with all these veterans who literally had to be rewrapped, um, even taking their socks and shoes off because their feet were soppy. And it struck me then that these great veterans that we're also um, are so valuable, we treat them so badly. And I don't just mean in the pensions and everything else, but literally dragging them to an event. Uh, <laughs> and then not really looking after them. And, uh, you know, it, it, and veterans are funny. And, and the veterans themselves are very funny, in my experience. I mean, I, the ones I knew in, the, in my family, and there were a lot, because it was a big family and they all fought in two world wars, many of them. Um, there were, because great granddad had decided that we would talk about it, that side of the family did talk about it, but another side of the family didn't talk about it because it was it was so horrific. And so you got all the you, you got different tenants, and yet you go with the ones who spoke down to the to the the legion on a Friday night and have a beer with them. They'd all be laughing away and all the rest of it with their mates. And then the next day they'd turn around and say, well, you know, he wasn't there. He was useless. And he wasn't there because he was a coward. And he wasn't there because he was working on the news. And you're, and you're thinking, well, why are you being nice to them? And they said, well, what can you do? They're your friends. Yeah. But, you know, they weren't the soldiers that they liked to talk about. And I, I used to say to them, well, what about, I used to say to my Uncle Jim, well, what do you think about the people who don't talk about the war because they say they don't want to talk about it? And he said, well, in my experience, those are the buggers that knew nothing, took part in nothing and never did anything. And I thought, well, yeah, is that true though? You know? He was a 7th Armoured Division veteran from 37 to 45, paraded in Berlin, wounded in Tobruk, all the rest of it. He, he was completely outspoken about them. Yeah, another one who was a chindit, he, he, it wasn't until, until very close to his death he suddenly started talking about it. Up until that point, it was very difficult to get him to speak about anything other than how much he hated other people on the roads. Which was, <laughs> which was, his, <laughs> which was a favourite, you know. And then there was another one who would just talk in such horrid detail of what it was like to experience the Blitz um, when the artillery regiment moved to the Tower of London. And I mean, it just struck me as just day after day after day after day of horror. And it, it, it got so impact on the brain, you know, it fused him. But others, <laughs> you know, you, you, I, met, I met one guy who'd won a DSO, who was a very brave soldier, who'd fought in Dunkirk and all the way through to Battle of Monte Cassino. And he just loved it. It was all great. Yeah, his mate, not a word. It, it, it is interesting. Who is that famous general who <laughs> got some scrapes? Oh, I can't remember his name. In the chat with the eye, he, he, he cut off his own fingers and all sorts. Oh. Well, the, 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 there's loads around. Who, the, 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 those who seem to love all the whole war thing, like, the, you know, the Sterling, 
Is it Kirk, yeah. General Sterling, Brigadiers, whatever? There was Sterling and his, you know, SAS units, and then you got Lord Lovett's commandos, and obviously the, a lot of those guys loved it. I was not greatly convinced that many of the veterans who I've come across actually did love it. You know, I think an awful lot of them, if they weren't with their mates, would be turning around and saying to you, well, actually, it was a horror. I mean, I met one Canadian soldier and he said to me, I started to get sick every time I smelt leather and carbolic soap. And that kind of didn't push it. Then a little while later, I said to him, you know, how are you feeling? He said, uh, every time I'm near leather and carbolic soap, I feel sick. And I said, oh, OK, it's unusual. He said, no, it was the Battle of Falaise. Um, all the horse traces of the German soldiers' cavalry stank. And, you know, all the leather bindings and all yeah. the rest. And he said all the German dead, all the German soldiers had this carbolic soap. And if any fluid got into it, this soap started to dissolve and give off this horrible smell. So he was literally describing what it was like to walk through the area of Falaise, which still offended him and still made him sick. That's put a gloomy tone in it for Christmas, isn't it? <laughs> Christmas special, happy Christmas. <laughs> But actually, no. This is this is this is quite an interesting point that, that actually you're making is that military history has to deal with both sides of the coin. You know, you, you can't just have the sunny uplands without the um, the the the, the stinging in depths. You know, they they are they are two members of the same family, and I think with military history, there is often this overwhelming need or desire, and even within reenactment, to show this 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 sort of world that didn't really exist it was perhaps five to five ten percent of what was actually going on um and unfortunately the sticky and depths are, are the remainder it's of that a, to a certain extent this is why living history and military history don't get uh, get on because uh, military history is a strange world of especially in britain and america where you know everybody's walking on heaven because on on water because they're all gods of war and what have you the living history people are all down in the mud doing what soldiers do or trying to reenact what soldiers do and there's a huge mismatch between the two because they can't link up so it's it's easy for the popular military historians to say the living history people don't know what they're doing because they don't read our books and the living history people turn around and say well they don't know what they're writing about because a they don't ask us and b they don't know what they're talking about so why should i read their books and to actually try and work out you know as, as it was a huge problem trying to work out how a german infantry squad and a company within a battalion operated because it's not like you can just pick up a book and say well how did this work because if you look through all the military histories you won't find it You'll find Sven Hassel or some other, you know, Eckert or some other fantasist. But to actually find a story, and, and you know, I'd look at Cross of Iron and I knew that wasn't correct. Because what I was reading with German soldiers wasn't And when I worked with a German colleague who was specialising in a German infantry division, 
you know, our conversations were not about cross of iron type activity. They were a different, it was altogether a different world. And once you've been through it from the division and then you've taken it all the way down to the squad and then you've looked at various battalions and what have you, you know that you're dealing with something which is not, is not ready, it's not ready yet, oven ready from the military history cells. You're, you're, you're ranging across a whole load of things. So, you know, I use GIS maps to explain tactical manoeuvres and small unit comp, uh, small unit tactics and individual soldier behaviour. But at the same time, I was having to use living history to explain how they put their uniforms on and what was in the uniform mix and why the, the material was not as good as it should have been. And similarly, you know, reading all of those um, books that people did on German marksmanship to understand what the marksmanship rules were in their pay books. And then I had to go for all the, you know, the medical papers of the University of Clinicum area that had military medical manuals on how German soldiers were treated when they were wounded. Because you can't pick up a book and say, yeah, because military history is devoid of that. Everybody will write books and books and books and books about Rommel. Everybody will write books about Kadirian. We know how many books come out of the 12th SS Panzer Division and all of this tosh. But you try and ask yourself, how does that simple thing work? And you won't find it. It's not in the military history and it's not in some other book. So you have to go to living history, you have to use the maps, you have to go to these manuals, you have to go to, and that, that's the process that we've been talking about here. That, that's why I'm not against reenactment, that's why I'm wary of taking veterans on their, you know, on their word. Because you have to be critical, because if you believe every story, it, it wouldn't work. Just no. And 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 to think, I have met at least twenty German soldiers, and each one of them has said something different, which is of value, but not not repeated by the others. That's exactly. That, I I think that's a good. That's a very good place to actually sort of wrap up. This, this particular special as an introduction really both to the book and, and, and to the methodology and, and the word that goes into a good book you know and, and the points you, you, you make about living history are vital because it has been talked about quite a bit of late um, and it's worth um, I won't go down the political route because you know you're always going to. Oh, get I'm not going down any political route. The point. No, is... no, I'm not saying you are. But I'm just saying I, I'm not going to say because I, I don't think it would bring anything to the conversation. I think you make the, the you know the point that you're making about the you know the organisation, the material, the the the, the clothing, little it's a minuetto that, that people actually want to know about because they then give you the better better picture, and in your mind you you can imagine operating to an extent in the field and with with this sort of equipment you know if, if the equipment's of inferior quality it's going to make life absolute hell in the in in the swamps 
in which men were, were operating. Yes, but I think what I also wanted to get across was, although I am, I'm a Holocaust historian who's done genocide, who's worked on German military history, who's also done a bit of British military history, and blah. Okay, so across that whole th thread, I am not against living history. I have my views, and they're largely negative, about those people who want to put on SS uniforms and run around on a British railway station. I just find the whole thing bizarre. That, yeah, and I, that I can't deal with. No, and I don't think we should have to. And actually, that that's, that's sort of that raises a very good point, doesn't it, about the place of military history, where we, where where does where the line between history and fantasy become just just ridiculous, almost asinine. And I know exactly the event to which you're referring to, because uh, I re I recall it well. And in fact, you know, again, we we had a chat before we started, and. I can recall attending something at Tangmere in 2000, where we had uh, SS reenactors suddenly pitch up. Um, there was VVIP there, who, who was one of the royals. Um, I remember the, <laughs> their, their, their head sort of minder saying to these guys, what are you doing here? The SS weren't in Britain in 1940 at Tangmere uh, in the high summer. Why are you here? Um, and, and I could never work out the the, the the appeal for for doing that, and I still can't, and I, and I find it most peculiar. It's yeah, you know, were the SS ever caught loitering around a standing locomotive? Of course they weren't. Well, why even bother? I don't know. Well, I I you know, I, I'm like you on this. Um, I don't see the sense of it. That, um, but on the other hand. I don't see that as a political message, as some people have said, because, you know, we've, we know that someone suggested you put on a, an SS uniform. You're somehow um, accepting the moral code and the behaviour and, and the politics of, of those kind of people. My, my impression of people who wear SS uniforms are actually unaware of any politics. They, they're actually unaware of an awful lot of stuff. They just happen to like uniforms and playing around with them. And and this is where I come back to this this note about military history. Few of them read the military history books because the military history books don't appeal to what they're interested in. And 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 this is where living history is different from military history. And and in my case, you know. Birds of prey is a micro history, and that's different from general history. But a lot of people don't kind of take that on board. I, I do take it on board. I understand why living history is essential, because I'm working at grassroots level, doing grassroots history in a micro historic form. But guys who are up there doing generals and divisions and this, that and the other, they don't engage with the living, the living history people because they just don't. And those who are reenacting these, the, the units that they reenact, don't aren't serviced by writers like the, you know, the people who write the 12 SS Panzer Division books. Because what's in those books is utter nonsense because those on the ground who are doing living history they know from experience that what they're reading in those books is utter shite. 
Well, no, you're right. It's often sensationalist. It's pandering to a very niche market. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll not say any more. <laughs> so, there you go. Yeah, there you go. Um, so, thank you for your time today. That's very kind of you. Big no, no, hey, and listener, thank you for joining us on this this feature length. Um, feature length. Feature length. We are. We are feature length now. We, Phil and I. Before you know where you are, we're going to be strutting down boulevards with with, with canes doing stuff because we're going to be famous for doing our feature length discussions. But this one was quite important because it introduces ultimately the uh, Phil's book. Birds of Prey. Um, we're going to be looking at this in the new year, a chapter at a time, discussing the, the various elements of the book as, as I read through it and my thoughts, uh, and then sort of, you know, Phil's responses. Um, I really hope that you can, that's if Phil wants to do it, of course, he might decide to suddenly disappear off the off the Twitterverse, block me from everything, not return my calls, and become rich and famous in, 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 in Arkham. And, that, and he's shaking his head. Why are you doing that? Why? <laughs> But we we do hope you can join us in 2022 um, as we start the series of discussions about Birds of Prey. Um, and I do hope that the, the comments that we've both made today, especially for our reenactment, uh, have been helpful. Um, and the, and the, the worth of reenactment when it comes to, to writing micro-histories. Um, wherever you are in the world, thank you ever so much for joining me today i wish you uh, and yours um happy christmas and a better 2022 wherever you are so uh, phil before you disappear and, and is there anything else you'd like to say only happy christmas and happy new year to everybody and um keep flying high biggles <laughs> you know it per Ardua at astra yeah, I, I wish I could say that like Miranda would, you know, Miranda Hart. I think she would be great. I might actually try and get hold of Miranda Hart. So, Miranda, would you mind saying, put Arjo Ed Astra in your best Miranda voice? And we can have that as a sign off. Well, it's better than got mit uns. And there we have it. The professionalism has returned to the Edgerton's <laughs> Lounge as quickly as it departed. Uh, <laughs> so, so well well as you railways tries try not to choke us. <laughs> thank you ever so much, Phil, for your time. Listen, thank you ever so much. Um I genuinely hope you have a great 2022 and uh, thanks for all of your support over 2021 in, in making the Ashes Lounge what it is. <laughs> the very <laughs> the very acme of professionalism. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, isn't it? And and I think 2022 will be pretty much the same, to be honest with you. Um if you want professionalism, uh, and, you, and you want serious content, this really isn't the, 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 the podcast for you. But, but if you're sticking around at a morbid curiosity like a lot of you are, thanks ever so much. It is greatly appreciated. And it means that, in my own way, I, I am a, a small voice in the in, in the great troposphere of podcasts, whatever. That's my TED Talk. Goodbye. Happy to say pet. Happy to say one of me. And once again, wherever you are, do take care and thanks to you.